Father, we bring these requests to you. We ask for your kindness now upon us that your word might bring to us in, a, in an age of fear and sorrow the surest of hopes. And this we ask in Christ's great name. Amen. Well, here we are this morning amidst one of the most fearful times that I can recall. Uh, midstream in a global pandemic with projected global deaths of hundreds of thousands Perhaps 60,000 Americans will lose a loved one as a result of this. Um, here in North Carolina, 500 families will suffer that loss. And mercifully, those projections are lesser than earlier ones. But 500, 500 people doesn't sound like a lot unless, unless you were married to one of those 500 or one of those 500 was your grandparent or your parent or your dear friend then it tears your world apart. And 60,000 families in the United States are on the way in the process of having their worlds torn apart this year. And that's honestly not even giving a nod to the far greater numbers of people like you and me that heart disease and cancer accidents will bring the greatest of sorrows to. You know, just yesterday I got a text uh, from a friend his young bride, a mother of their two children, was diagnosed uh, with cancer. Um, lymphoma, hopefully treatable, we hope and pray. But still, it's a fair question to ask in, in times like this. Where is God in all of this sorrow? And in response to that, I take it as a kindness from God that during our most fearful of times, when we're facing our greatest fear and sorrow, that Easter is dropped right in the midst of it all. Easter is, I believe, God's way of bringing hope to us when we need it most, when we are brought kicking and screaming to face our greatest fear, and that is death. Not necessarily our personal death, but for many of us, it's a concern for those that we love for our grandparents, or for that favorite cousin with asthma, or for that good friend with diabetes. T today, we want to look at the empty tomb for answers, but not that empty tomb, okay. at least not at first. First, we want to look at another empty tomb. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, it's one of Jesus' biographies in the New Testament, there are actually two empty tombs. Um, Jesus is the second of those. And what we want to start today is look at the first empty tomb first. And that tomb belonged to a man named Lazarus, and it's found in your Bibles in John chapter 11. So uh, first, as you open your Bibles to John chapter 11, let's get a sense for where we are in John chapter 11 in Jesus' story. Um, in the previous verses, right at the back end of chapter 10, we see that opposition is heating up against Jesus. In verse 31, we read that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And then down in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. If you were to flip over one page past um, Lazarus' story in chapter 11 to chapter 12 of John's gospel, 
We find ourselves on Saturday night, the night before Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem. But most importantly, at that point, we are literally just a handful of days from the cross. So chapter 11 begins amidst those twin sorrows for Jesus, persecution on the one hand and the cross on the other. And so with that in mind, uh, let me introduce you to the cast of John chapter 11. It goes like this. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So chapter 11 revolves around this family in Bethany. Um, Bethany is just a couple miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. Um, and the family is a brother named Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And they are friends with Jesus. Um, John goes out of his way to tell us repeatedly that Jesus loved these two sisters and their ailing brother. It's on the lips of these two sisters, in fact. Um, in the message they send to Jesus, they don't even mention Lazarus by name. They just give him the title, He Whom You Love. And in verse 5, John tells us again that Jesus loves this family. And then if you go way down to verse 36, the bystanders there in that verse, present, um, they declare it too. See how he loved him. Don't, don't miss that. If you miss that, the love of Jesus for this family, none of this story really makes any sense. Jesus loves Lazarus and his sisters. And it's pointed out to us over and over and over again because I think it is so deeply true on the one hand and on the other hand because what Jesus is about to do is a truly strange way to show love. You see, Lazarus, as it turns out, is deathly ill. His sisters send a messenger to Jesus bearing just that simple message. Lord, he whom you love is ill and it seemed enough to them just to let Jesus know their need as Saint Augustine put it long ago they did not even say come but only Lord he whom you love is ill as if to say it's enough that you know for you are not one that loves and then abandons and Jesus gives just a hint of veiled hope for their messenger and his disciples to hear. In verse four, Jesus, when he heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Jesus is choosing his words carefully here. He doesn't say that this sickness doesn't lead through death, only that it doesn't lead to death. That is that it won't end there. And as I mentioned already, Jesus is about to reshape how we think about both death and love in this encounter. 
Because immediately after underscoring his love for this family, this is what we read next. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. So Jesus gets the news that his friend is ailing. And rather than go to him, he decides to wait two days for no apparent reason and then go. The language is really clear here, as some of your Bibles put it. Jesus loved this family, therefore he stayed two days longer when he got the news. This is a really strange way to love. But John is crystal clear here. Jesus is demonstrating his love here by delay. What is Jesus doing? Something even more loving than comforting his friends. Uh, I love the way Pastor John Piper puts it. He says, don't measure the love of God for you by how much health and wealth and comfort he brings into your life. If that were the measure of God's love, then he hated the Apostle Paul. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you, how much of himself he gives you to know and enjoy. And Jesus here is about to put on quite a show. For the sake of time, skip down with me to verse 11. We'll pick up the story there. It says, after saying these things, Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So now Jesus' disciples at this point are thoroughly confused. First, he delays going for two days, and now he's gonna go and says, Lazarus is just sleeping. To remove the latter confusion, Jesus drops the metaphor of sleep and puts it bluntly. Lazarus, he tells them, is dead. And to add to the strangeness of it all, Jesus says he's glad he wasn't there to prevent it. What is Jesus up to that's more important than saving a friend's life? And Jesus is hinting at it here when he says, I'm going to show them my glory so that they will believe in me. Okay. Not believe here like mere intellectual assent, but believe as in trust and hope and follow. Um, the difference between those two is huge. Think of, it, uh, think of the difference between a sports statistician and a fan. Okay? A sports statistician looks at the statistics and he's just going to say, the Tar Heels have a better recruiting class next year than the Blue Devils. Okay? That's the fact. He doesn't care one way or the other. That's just, he's just stating the facts. Relax, Blue Devil fans. This is hypothetical. Okay? But a fan... 
hears that news. A Tar Heel fan hears that. He lives for that news. He loves that news. He follows that news. He does a little dance when he hears that news. Okay. That's, what, um, that's what we're talking about here. We talk about belief. With all of your being, you believe. Now, spoiler alert here. If you haven't read this story before, Jesus intends to raise Lazarus from the grave. And that in itself will definitely give your faith a boost, I would think. You get a sense that it must be of the utmost importance to Jesus that his friends truly believe. And he tells us why a little later in the same book of John. He says in chapter 16, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So belief in Jesus is how we get access to the love of God for us. What Jesus is doing here is bigger than just something for his 12 disciples. It's for you too. What he does for Lazarus, he does in front of his disciples for their faith, and it's written down here for yours. That's the purpose of the entire Gospel of John. Listen to how John closes out this book that contains Lazarus' story. In chapter 20, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He wants Thomas and his friends and you and me to know that far more than death awaits them and us as we follow Jesus. Look down at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So Lazarus is four days dead. Likely he was already dead when Jesus got word. And it makes you wonder why the delay, Jesus. And so it seems that to go beyond three days dead in Jewish thought and belief was to definitively move Lazarus, according to Miracle Max categories of thanatology, from the category of mostly dead to the category of all dead, right? Jesus, by his delay, is making sure everyone knew that Lazarus was all dead, right? And having arrived in Bethany, Jesus now cares for Lazarus' sister, Martha. Martha says to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Martha here expresses both lament and faith in her greeting of Jesus. She laments his absence, but she seems to truly believe that Jesus could have healed her brother. And then she says something quite remarkable in the next verse. Even though, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I'm not sure we should read anticipation of her brother's resurrection here into Martha's words, but still to trust Jesus this much after such a great sorrow 
that at some level you think he could have prevented, this is quite a statement of trust. So Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus gives Mary a remarkable twofold promise here. One for her brother and all who are like him and one for her and all who are like her. First for Lazarus, your brother will rise again. And then he expands it for all those who die believing. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is the hope of resurrection from the grave for all who believe. And then there's a promise for for Martha and those like her. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the hope of eternal life. Jesus is saying these promises are bound up in him. Without him, there's no resurrection from the dead, no life everlasting. Professor D.A. Carson helps us think about what Jesus is really saying here. He says, uh, the first fast food chain that was developed here in North America was not McDonald's. The first big one was Kentucky Fried Chicken. And everywhere there were pictures of Colonel Sanders and his finger-licking good secret recipe of 11 herbs and spices and, and so on, he says. So you can imagine at some point Colonel Sanders saying, I am Kentucky Fried Chicken. That wouldn't be a literal claim, right? He wasn't a chicken Kentucky Fried or otherwise, but you could understand what he meant. He was so much tied up with Kentucky Fried Chicken that without him, without his chain, without his restaurants, without his finger-licking good secret recipe of herbs and spices, there would be no Kentucky Fried Chicken. All the rest was phony. Colonel Sanders could say, I am Kentucky Fried Chicken. And that, to a much greater degree, is what Jesus means when he says to Martha and to us, I am the resurrection and the life. Without Jesus, apart from Jesus, there is no resurrection hope. There is no eternal life. And now Jesus invites Martha to believe these great truths about him. He simply says, Martha, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She is here as affirming as she can be, considering all that she's being asked to believe from the front side of seeing Jesus' resurrection power. And Jesus gives Martha a stunning promise here, anchored in who he is, And what he's about to do, and I'm not talking just about raising her brother back to life. Jesus' own resurrection is just around the corner. Don't miss that Jesus' promise here of resurrection and life is for more than just Lazarus and Martha. It's for all who believe. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. Mary. 
saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So now Jesus cares for Mary. The invitation that Martha brings to her sister, it's interesting, she says, the teacher is calling you. It echoes another invitation that Mark records that Jesus gave to blind Bartimaeus just before Jesus gave back his sight. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus stopped, said to the crowd, call him, speaking of Bartimaeus, the blind man. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. It sounds like Jesus has something amazing in store for Mary and her sister. I love what Professor Dale Bruner said about it. He says, the teacher is calling you. These words could be carved atop every pew, table, and pulpit in the sanctuary of every congregation. Sad, depressed, hurting Mary, who could not honestly, like her more cheerful sister Martha, go out to meet the tardy Jesus. This unworthy Mary is given Jesus' worthying invitation. The teacher is here, and he is calling you. This, he says, is called grace in theology. And so now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so Mary asks the same lamenting faith question as her sister. It seems they'd probably discussed together how they wished Jesus could have been there for their brother. And then when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? See, repeatedly in this section of the story, we see how deeply moved Jesus was by what he was encountering here. In verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In verse 35, we see him weeping. In verse 38, Jesus is deeply moved again. It's interesting, the language that's used here to describe Jesus' emotion implies that he was not just grieving, though I think that was, that's inescapable, seems inescapable to me, likely the principal reason for his tears. But scholars are quick to point out that this is the language of anger, of provocation. What could Jesus be so riled up about here? We aren't told explicitly, but the story hints at several probable sources. First of all, he is staring death in the eye and seeing the great sorrow it causes those he loves. It is likely loving anger that is welling up in Jesus. But he may well also be troubled by the unbelief around him, particularly doubts about his love. 
It's interesting, as we saw, that John three times declares Jesus' love for this family by his own pen, on the lips of Mary and Martha, and then on those of the mourners with him as he wept. In, in verse 35 and 36, Jesus wept and the Jews said, see how he loved him. So make note of this, okay? This is not likely a single tear rolling down Jesus' cheek at this point. It was a great sorrow visible to all who were present. Think shoulders heaving, great sobs of sorrow coming forth. One scholar rendered it this way, Jesus bawled. Surely Jesus is entering into the grief of his friends here sharing their sorrow and loss in a way that causes him, even the bystanders to declare, see how he loved him. Professor Brian Chapel writes, does God care? Look at the cross. Look at the Savior who wept for you and bled for you. When we're facing our greatest sorrows these days, This is where our God is. He weeps with us. And Jesus' love here is bigger than for Lazarus, bigger than for Mary and Martha. It is for us all. Professor Bruner takes the lyrics of a familiar hymn and and bends it to this expression of love. He says, and can it be that thou, my God, wouldst cry with me? Amazing love. How can it be? Jesus declared his love for those who follow him in the next pages of John's gospel. John 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. But now, the greatness of their loss seems to have called his love into question. First, in lesser ways, by the sister's identical question, which could easily have felt like, why weren't you here, Jesus? Don't you care enough to be here when we need you most, Jesus? And now in verse 37, that accusing thought is boldly put. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Uh, Recently, there's a Washington, D.C. psychologist His name is Douglas LeBeer. He labeled a new disorder, EDD he calls it, empathy deficit disorder. And this is essentially the diagnosis that these mourners are making about Jesus. He just didn't care enough. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's not that Jesus didn't care enough. It's that his love transcended mere empathy he was going to love them in an even greater way. Jesus knows not just what he is about to do for Lazarus. He has already made his intentions clear. He's going to raise this man to life again. But he also knows the even greater act of love that he's about to do in just a short time on the cross and in his own empty tomb. To be staring down these great acts of love in the immediate future and have your love questioned is troubling to Jesus, no doubt. 
And interesting, the first time he's so troubled is after Mary asks him for the second time, Jesus, why weren't you there? And then the second time he's so deeply troubled follows the Jews' blatant accusation. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept his man from dying? So in verse 38, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So the Jews' doubt of his love provokes Jesus yet again, and now he's ready to put his love on full display. But Martha, even though she's full of faith in Jesus, cannot see how opening up the tomb will be anything but smelly. Uh, The King James Version puts it plainly. Lord, she says, by this time he stinketh. Jesus is patient with Martha. He presses on. His love for his friends at this point is unstoppable. So in verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I love what Dale Bruner says. He says, an immovable object meets an irresistible force. Death meets Christ and Christ conquers. It has been said that the reason Jesus had to call Lazarus out by name was that if he did not, every tomb in Jerusalem would have spit out its dead. Jesus himself said in the same gospel in chapter 5, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In great power and unwavering love, Jesus gives Lazarus back his life and gives him back to his family. So great is the love of Christ for his people that even death cannot thwart it. This is what Paul, I think, had in the back of his mind when he wrote these words in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this inseparable love is bigger than just for Lazarus and his sisters. It's for us all, especially in our sorrows. Listen to what the psalmist wrote long ago. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And this promise of resurrection, it's bigger than this family too. It's for all who believe. Listen again to Jesus' promise to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What does all this mean for us who live in the midst of such fearful times? First of all, I think it's of the utmost importance to realize that Lazarus' resurrection was a real resurrection. He was all dead. And Jesus did raise him back to life. But it's also important to realize that Lazarus' resurrection was what could be called a restorative resurrection. His life was restored to him. But he would die again. Lazarus was the man who would die twice. In that sense, Lazarus' resurrection is a lesser kind of resurrection than the next one Jesus would perform, which was his own. Jesus' own resurrection wasn't merely restorative, it was transformative. Jesus would raise from the dead on the third day, never to die again. The apostle Paul wrote about it with great clarity. We know, he said in Romans 6, that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So Lazarus' resurrection is a pointer to us to Jesus' greater resurrection. And Paul describes it in as simple a terms as he can in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, Paul says. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And it's the resurrection of Jesus, Paul goes on to argue in 1 Corinthians 15, that makes our own resurrection sure. Lazarus' resurrection points to Jesus' resurrection that sources and secures our resurrections. Paul writes about, again, about our resurrection beautifully. Listen to it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? encouraged by John Piper in these matters he says this is the glory of Jesus Jesus raised Lazarus because he is the resurrection he is the arrival in history of God's final glorious renovation of all things including our aging broken sick bodies believers 
You will be raised from the dead and shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. Lazarus is a preview of your resurrection. Therefore, it is God saying to you what he said to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I love you. My love for you is more than just sparing you suffering and death. It's the gift of myself, my glory. Do you see me? Do you see me for who I really am? Come to me. I have much more to show you. So this morning, if you're watching and you feel a little bit on the outside looking in on this whole hope of resurrection kind of thing, this morning I want you to know that Jesus' invitation to Martha, it's for you too. He says to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? By faith, by believing in his death on the cross for your sins and in his resurrection, Jesus is offering eternal life to you, the hope of resurrection to you. I can't think of a better day to make your own resurrection sure than Easter Sunday in the middle of a pandemic. Now, what about those of us who already believe? What does this say to us? And I would say two things. No fear and great love. First, no fear. No fear of death, right? If COVID-19 comes knocking on your door, no fear. I'm not saying we make light of death. We don't dread the suffering and loss that it brings. But in the cross... Jesus freed us from the fear of death. What one theologian said, it's the death of death and the death of God. And in the resurrection, Jesus does a little dance on the casket, right? No fear. No fear for us. We die different. But secondly, I'd say great love. Great love is our other response. Great love and great worship. It's interesting that John brackets the account of Lazarus' resurrection with a mention of Mary's anointing of Jesus with expensive perfume. In verse 2, it says it was Mary, when he introduces Mary, he says it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That's her fame. And then he brackets Lazarus' story on the back end with the full account of this loving act of worship by Mary in chapter 12 that follows. It is a beautiful, even legendary act of love and worship for the one who raised her brother from the dead and promised her life eternal. And if you've ever lost a believing grandparent or a parent, or a brother or sister or a cousin or an uncle or an aunt or a good friend or a co-worker, you get the idea. If you've ever lost someone you loved and they believed in Jesus, then you stand where Mary stood, grateful beyond words for the sure hope of resurrection. And you should love and worship like Mary. Legendary worship, passionate worship, no holding back worship. 
And so as the worship team readies to lead us, let me invite you, hey, turn the volume up and worship. Worship the one who granted the hope of resurrection to the ones you love and eternal life to you.
Well, as we close our time together today, let me again remind you that there are some thoughts for food for you to kick around over lunch. They're on the screen behind me. You're Feel free later on to, over lunch, come back to this, rewind to this part of the service. You'll have those questions there. They're also in an email that were sent out to our church family yesterday. But I'd like to encourage you, kick those around as a family and then FaceTime or Zoom another family that you know is watching the video and ask them about what the thing they saw in this story in John 11 about Jesus that they love the most. And have a little FaceTime or Zoom with another family that's watching the video together today to encourage them. I hope you'll enjoy that. Following this service immediately, there's a real brief, a little closing thought from, from me. And across the bottom, you will see a link that you can click on that takes you to a website that does a little less than two-minute explanation of how you can enter into a relationship with God through Christ and have a sure hope of resurrection that brings you into life in the love of God. And again, it's less than two minutes. I hope you'll take the time to look at it. Let me dismiss you now with this benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought back again from the dead our Lord Jesus, equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ all that is pleasing to him, and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. For he is risen, he is risen indeed. We're really glad that you could join us for worship this morning. And we want you to know that if there's any way we can serve you during these troubled times, um, contact our office. One of our leaders will be in contact with you shortly. We'd love to be of assistance to you in any way that we can. Especially, we'd like to help you get to know God better. And a really helpful next step in that process would be to go to the website that's listed below. There's a really insightful short presentation that explains with great clarity how you can actually enter into a relationship with God and know him as your father. So again, thank you so much for coming this morning. Let us know if there's any way we can serve you.